Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. In 1736, Mr. Benjamin Franklin was 30 years old and wholly unaware of his revolutionary destiny. Though not yet a politician, Franklin was still civic-minded and had formed the Union Fire Company in the same year, one of the first volunteer firefighting companies in America. He also supplemented his various strands of income with his words. And in 1736, we find him having just submitted a description of a most remarkable discovery to the Pennsylvania Gazette, which was published on the 6th of May. It was with the utmost conviction that Franklin informed his reader about the discovery of a sea monster in the Atlantic Ocean, just off the crystalline pink sands of Bermuda, a small island between the old world and the new, as the colonists saw it, and a stronghold of British naval might in the 18th century. Franklin reported that the upper part of this sea creature was in the shape and about the bigness of a boy of 12 years old with long black hair. The lower part resembled a fish. The men who had encountered this strange creature managed to capture it and examine it, but, according to Franklin, owing to its human likeness, they compassionately agreed to let the creature go. A dubious claim, considering the colonizers had no such compassion for actual human beings who they had enslaved and forcefully transported from their native Africa, but I digress. If the British naval forces were in the midst of conquering the seas, Franklin hinted, this discovery was a reminder that the oceans of the world were ultimately unknowable, and that in this age of empire, their mysterious depths could never truly be conquered. Welcome to After Dark. I'm Maddie. And I'm Anthony. And <laughs> why did I sing that? I don't know. I'm Anthony. <laughs> Sorry, that <laughs> it's a musical episode today. Who knew? Beautiful. Uh, today we are taking to the high seas and we're talking about mermaids. What he ask is their history and most pressingly, did Anthony get Eric and Ariel dolls for Christmas when he was seven years old? Yes, I did. And actually, 
Oh my God, I love them so much. And I, I even put them in my, I robbed my sister's doll pram and I put them to bed each night in my sister's doll pram. But that isn't the only mermaid connection. <laughs> my granny, Lizzie. Lizzie, RIP Lizzie. She made me, knowing my obsession with the mermaids, she made me a mermaid's tail. <gasps> so uh, I actually had a mermaid's tail that I was able to wear. In. What was it made of? It wasn't very appropriate material for a mermaid's tail. I think it was just cotton. So what she did was she made me a cotton one. She stuffed the fins at the end. It was blue. Well, it was a bluey green turquoise, if you will. And uh, she stuffed the fins at the end with cotton wool, I think. And then she drew on with black marker the fins, you know, wow. like I was delighted. I used to sit in it and just wag my tail. Oh, that God. sounds amazing there's nothing better than things made by your grandma that's so lovely so we're talking about mermaids made by grandmothers and mythological when we were talking about doing this episode and talking about mermaids initially i thought it's quite an old topic it's not the mermaid isn't really someone who crops up or resurfaces in modern culture necessarily but actually you know i was thinking about the fact that even on like social media on tiktok now you get stories you get videos of people supposedly shooting footage out in like the north sea claiming that they are seeing mermaids jumping through the waves and i think actually once you start to look for the mermaid she does appear in really unexpected places yeah i spend way too much of my time on TikTok and I have seen these videos come up and I've reposted some of them and it's because they are myth-making in a really modern sense. It usually comes from a high up vantage point on the ship where somebody has a smartphone, they're filming this really rough sea. I'd be vomiting my face off probably, but they're filming and you can see these things breaking the surface of the water. You're not quite sure what they are. Have they been added in? The answer is probably yes, they have. But it's myth-making. It's part of this very long history, which we are going to explore in this episode, of mermaid myth, but that myth and mystery coming from the vastness of the oceans. And that is something that stays with us, that breaks across timelines, across centuries. And it's just so interesting that it's right there on TikTok, you can't scroll by without seeing one of these dramatic waves breaking and something just lurking under the waves. Before we dive in properly, see what I did there. Okay, jokes. <laughs> but um, Can we have a bit of context? Because mermaids, to me, we've referenced the Disney film already, they are the thing of fictions, they are mythological creatures. Do they have a history that we can trace? They do. And what's fascinating about the history of mermaids and related creatures is that it gives you a global history, particularly from the 17th century onwards, when some of these stories start traveling all across the world. And it really leans into the globalization that you see in the early modern world and then into the 18th century as well. So what we will find is that Stories of mermaid and mermaid-like creatures are traveling the globe, but they also have very specific origins. And it's interesting to see what those various histories, and we'll examine some of them throughout this episode, it's interesting to see how they overlap and how they're very different. But the very first mermaid that we know that has been recorded originates in Syria from about 1000 BCE. And it was linked to the idea that the goddess Atargetus, she dove into the sea apparently to take the form of a fish because that was something that she could do. However, when she got 
into the sea. The sea gods were having none of it. They were like, no, you are too beautiful. We can't have you turning into a fish. So only the bottom half of you can turn into a fish. So she kept the upper half of her body as human and then the lower half, as we traditionally know, became a fish. And we see figures of this person depicted in ancient temples, on coins. There are statues of her. So we're talking a very, very ancient history here. So straight away in this early depiction, we've got the mermaid as being traditionally female and that Mm -hmm. it's linked to ideas of female beauty standards and maybe taking away a little bit of power of compromising in terms of female appearance in some way that in this story, she's too beautiful to be in the sea. So something is taken from her. Interestingly as well, and I suppose this is going to come up again and again, this idea of the bottom half being a fish and thinking about what's being taken away there. There's Mm -hmm. something about maybe reproductive rights. There's something about biological sex of a Mm -hmm. person being erased or covered up in some way. Yes, you're spot on. There is a really strong link here between biological sex, gender expression. Although, as we'll see as we go through this, the mer-person form is not solely assigned to women, but certainly the origins are. And it links to ideas of agency and female power and controlling female power. But then the myth turns that on its head and gives the power back to the mermaid. But we'll discover all of this as we go. So if we say that these beginnings, the history is somewhere around Syria, the very beginnings of this history is somewhere around Syria in 1000 BCE. The earliest records that we have in England are found in a Norman chapel in Durham Castle, apparently, which was built around 1078. But we know that the Celts also had folk tales of mermaids. You know, these are ancient things and they are embedded in multiple different cultures in multiple different ways. I'm assuming, in broad general terms, that mermaid stories develop in coastal places and that what links these places and these stories is the ocean, the routes by which people are travelling, sharing their stories, and that maybe you could draw a map of the world's mermaids that would actually show you all kinds of historic trade routes and when cultures and stories are being swapped as well as goods for sale. Funnily enough, I think every single one of the stories we're going to hear today, including that first one that we heard with Benjamin Franklin, all take place in the Atlantic Ocean. That is not to say there are not other mermaid-like tales in other seas and oceans around the world, but the Atlantic Ocean just with you talking about international trade in the, say, 18th century, is a key hotspot for that. That is really interesting. So let's go back to that opening story. It's set in 1736. We have the famous founding father, Benjamin Franklin. Can you give us some context of what's happening in the world that Franklin lives in? And why is he, in an age of supposed reason and enlightenment, coming up with stories of mermaids? I think that's really interesting and we should discuss that actually. But in terms of 1736 or the years around 1736, the American colonies are still part of the British Empire at this time. Mm -hmm. So this is a British Empire history as opposed to purely an American history. We're 40 years or so away from the American Revolution at this particular point. George II is on the throne, which means George II is also the king of the Americas at this point, or the New World as they phrased it. Linking to what you had just said about 
the Age of Enlightenment. In the year before 1735, there was a Witchcraft Act passed. Now, you might think to yourself, right, okay, we're witch hunting again, it's called the Witchcraft Act. But no, this was to stop witchcraft accusations. They were seen as now a legal waste of time. And this was to put an end to allegations of witchcraft, making such claims illegal. So that's 1735. So that says something about these kind of stories coming across in newspapers by, you know, intelligent people such as Benjamin Franklin. It gives us a little bit of an interesting backdrop as to what's going on in the world uh, at this time as well. And it tells us so much about the intellectual position of Britons and how they want to show themselves on a world stage. It's so interesting that you bring up the 1735 Witchcraft Acts. I've actually been thinking about this a lot for my second book, which is really kind of looking at this push and pull between the idea of enlightenment, and we can talk about what that means or doesn't mean, and this supposed rejection of superstition, of the old ways. And it's really in my mind at the moment. And it's I hadn't really thought of mermaids as fitting into this conversation necessarily. So this is really exciting. Anthony, how do you sort of understand enlightenment in the 18th century? What is your view of it? Because I think it's fair to say today, in terms of scholarship around the 18th century, it's a very contested term. What do you think it is? Oh, a test, Maddie. <laughs> I think let's go for the general understanding of what enlightenment means to most people, I would say. I think most people have an interpretation of the enlightenment as probably occurring in the 18th century. This idea of advancing thought and scientific, artistic, social, cultural advancements where we're seeing ourselves as more intelligent, more civilised, more tuned into the world around us. We're making discoveries. We're leaving some of the old ways behind and becoming more enlightened in our approach to how we interact with the world. Now, you're going to tell me, and rightly so, that it's far more complicated than that. But I think that is the general understanding of the Enlightenment, right? I would say so, yes. And this is an era, especially in Britain, in France, in Russia, in the British colonies in America as well, where there's a sort of performative element around this new state of learning and knowledge. Um, there's collecting becomes a huge thing. So collecting objects of different categories. We get the idea of taxonomies. So putting things into categories, essentially. So things like minerals, rocks, ceramics, all kinds of things from the natural world, but also artistic things as well, sculpture, painting, all of that. And that if you can possess all of that stuff and display it, you're showing that you appreciate art, the world, that you know about it and that you're in control of it. Yes, the and control of course, is important, isn't it? It absolutely is. And of course, this extends to human beings as well. So there's difficulty and you know we think about enlightenment and this idea of bringing civilization to britain to its colonies but of course what does civilization mean on the ground in reality in the 18th century it means enslavement and so i'm interested thinking about mermaids mm. that there's a sort of impulse to go out into the world find all these curiosities and explain what they are and you know if you can find a specimen and put it in a glass jar then you've conquered that idea and you own it. And I wonder if there's a sense with Benjamin Franklin and people like him of wanting to maybe find a creature like a mermaid to prove that it's real and to literally make it into a specimen, to 
put it into a category of the natural world. It's interesting. I think for me, what it speaks to more so than just that, although of course that's a a drive and, and people are paying, rich people obviously, are paying in the 18th century for expeditions to do exactly what you just described, for people to go and find proof of a mermaid that can be put in a case, that can be displayed and that can prove that there's a dominance that we are now dominating the seas. But it's that that I think is key, that idea of control and dominance again, where this mermaid, this folk tale is lasting for generations and centuries by the looks of it. And so there must be something in it, perhaps they're thinking. They are relatively new to the oceans at this point. Ocean travel, of course, is ancient, but on the scale that we see it in the 18th century and the, the global scale that we see it in the 18th century, this is new. So people from Britain, let's say, just as an example, are encountering new things on the sea and related to the sea on a daily basis. They are recording them in their journals. And these are things that we know exist because we have scientific proof, even if they don't exist now, that they did exist then. So this age of discovery is unparalleled in terms of the ocean and the seas. So I think there's something got to do with that. But I also think, and coming back to what you were saying about this glass case idea, there was a thought at the time that a mermaid might say something to us about the origins of mankind, about the aquatic origins of mankind. There was this idea already that everything came from the ocean. So therefore, we must have come from the ocean. And if we came from the ocean, is the mermaid a missing link? No. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, absolutely no. No, I think that is a really interesting idea. And this question of the origins of human beings takes on all kinds of racialized aspects in the 18th century and links into that kind of difficult idea of what enlightenment was that you know it can be explicitly racist in the 18th century and i wonder if we can kind of include ideas around mermaids and the origin of humans as part of that conversation that actually there's something othered but they potentially represent to people looking for these answers and looking to categorize everything and order everything as a way of legitimizing their own hierarchies that they're placing on the world. That if mermaids are kind of almost a missing link, that they are the answer to this question of why people are different and a way of strengthening those hierarchies, maybe. Yeah. And of course, the 18th century people being the people that discover this, that they are in a position because they are so enlightened that they can crack this code. They have all the tools, the intellect, the scientific knowledge that can advance our understanding of the origins of humankind. But of course, as you rightly pointed out, that isn't the origins of humankind at all. But they were pushing the boundaries of what they knew at that particular point. Mm -hmm. One thing that I will say about the 18th century and this culture of so-called discovery, that at home in Britain... There is some hesitation and scepticism around this, actually. And one thing that we see a lot of at the end of the 18th century, so a little bit later after Franklin's writing about his mermaid in the papers in in America, you do start to see almost joke versions of these kinds of discoveries coming in and people at like local fairs and things, traveling fairs around Britain saying, oh, come and see the mermaid in the little water tank and, you know, draw back the curtain and it's, you know, just... It's me. It's me in the tail that my granny made. It's you with Granny Lizzie's tail. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You know, and there's that kind of 
a slight mockery of this idea of this taxonomic order of everything and that actually some things that are being brought into this conversation are ridiculous, are fanciful, don't really exist. So there's a kind of push and pull intellectually, almost a culture war between the people who are going out and writing this stuff, performing this enlightenment, and there are people who are sceptical and who are laughing at it, essentially. With that in mind, do you think Benjamin Franklin thought there was any credence in what he wrote, or was he trying to sell a piece of writing? I don't know, and I think I think you could argue for it either way. Of course it would sell papers, of course it would. And there are lots of examples of these kinds of reports in the 18th century in particular, where people get really riled up and think whatever this local monster or magical thing is, that you know it's, it's real and there's this kind of excitement briefly and then someone will prove that it's not real. So on the one hand, it would sell papers. But we're thinking Benjamin Franklin famously is very interested in scientific experimentation. He's very caught up in the conversations that this Enlightenment world is bringing to the table. I think he would be on the lookout for something like this and he would be excited to be the discoverer of it. I think he's 30 years old at this point. He's a man, relatively young man, still on the make, looking to make his name in the world, looking to make a living. My instinct, although, as you said, we can't know, my instinct is he didn't believe a word of this, but he needed to pay his rent or he needed to put food on the table or whatever it was. So he spins a yarn and a yarn that he knows people will lap up. I mean, that's still something people do today. That's not that unusual. Okay, so we've talked a little bit about the mermaid appearing in terms of the British Empire in terms of very much a European Western tradition, that it's something other, it's something to go and be discovered, something that may or may not be out there that people can kind of have fun with, that becomes something reported in newspapers, part of a modern conversation about what the world is at that moment. Is the mermaid purely a Western tradition though? It isn't. And after the break, when we come back, We have a little treat for our After Dark listeners where the children from Harris Primary Academy, Coleraine Park, where I used to teach drama many moons ago, are going to tell us a story about a mermaid who comes from Nigeria. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, host of Dan Snow's History at Podcast here. History isn't just dates and facts. It's about the incredible stories that shape our world. Three times a week on my podcast, my expert guests and I bring you extraordinary stories of heroism, discovery, mystery, and power. Expect tales of lost tombs, daring escapes, power-hungry rulers, and those determined to bring them all down. If you're a history lover or just looking for a good tale, you'll want to check out Dan Snow's History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to After Dark. Now, as we promised before the break, we have a very special story for you this time, and it is read to us by some of the Year 5 children at Harris Primary Academy, Colrain Park, specifically Kayla... Deborah, Ire, Amira, and Mariah. The Nigerian sun rises in the glorious anticipation of the day ahead. This morning, Akinola, the fisherman, has risen and will go to work. That day, the water is still and smells of the sun. A good day to fish, Akinola thinks as he pushes the boat onto the water. Once positioned, I drift on the never-ending seas. Akinola casts his net. The fish will come, he thinks to himself. They always do. It wasn't long before he felt a tug on the net. A powerful tug. A big fish, he thought to himself. Perfect. He pulled the net towards the surface, then got to his feet and heaved even harder. Suddenly, his catch broke the surface of the Atlantic Ocean. But it was no fish. In his net, he saw the form of a woman, her skin the colour of fertile soil, and her black hair gracefully coiffed. Panicking, he reached for the woman's hand to help pull her into his boat and save her life. But she did not take his hand. Instead, she studied him, curiously. Do you not wish to be saved? He asked the mysterious woman from the deep. She did not reply, but then Akinola noticed the water snake swimming about her. Petrified, he wobbled in his boat, lost balance, and plunged into the water. Akinola opened his eyes beneath the waves and saw that the woman was not a woman at all, for she had red, a red and white tail. Mummy water? The mermaid spirit! The mysterious sea sign replied with a nod, carrying him safely back to his boat. This Akinola knew was Mother Water, the celebrated African spirit, the sacred element of water herself. That was just adorable i loved that well i used to teach them drama many years ago so no wonder no wonder they're so eloquent (laughs) all talent down to anthony clearly (laughs) (laughs) yeah okay so let's talk about the story that we've just heard i think it has so many interesting elements but something that is speaking to me that's different 
from the Benjamin Franklin story is the fact that the mermaid here is a goddess. She's a divine being. She's not just a curiosity or an animal in the natural world. She's something elevated beyond that. She's initially mistaken for a human being. She's pulled up in a net as though she's a fish. So we have these that traditional folk story or fairy tale rhythm of, is she a fish? Is she a human? No, third time lucky. No, she's a mermaid. And that grouping of three always comes up in, in stories. So we have her as this combination of things. She is described as being a combination, but that combination then makes her something altogether different again. Yeah. And it's interesting because you talk about it being taking the female form, which she does, of course, in this particular story. But there are other African stories that say that this type of figure could be a male figure as well. And the other variation you get is we heard in that story that the mother of water was had a fish tail. But actually, if I do our old after dark customary thing that we do with pictures, I've given you a picture in the briefing notes, Maddie. So if you just grab a look at that there. And this is a depiction of the mother of water. And it's from the Minneapolis Institute of Art. And if you could just describe it to the listeners so that we can see how this description varies from the description that we just heard in the story of Akinola. Mm. So this is a sculpture. It's hard to tell how big it is in this photo. There's not really anything for context. It looks like it's made of wood, I think. It's painted. So it's a figure of a woman. And this is not a half female, half serpent or fish situation. She has a human female form. She's got legs and actually has what look like silver high heels on. Amazing. Yeah. She has a little yellow skirt and a sort of silvery top. And her arms are raised with her hands level with her eyes. And around her whole body and around her arms going over her shoulders are, I think, two separate snakes that have sort of intertwined with her. And she's holding the neck of one in one hand. She looks like she's sort of in command of them. Not necessarily what you'd expect for a mermaid. No. And as I said, different from what is contained in the Akinola story. But there are elements there that were in the story. For instance, the snakes. And the snakes apparently signify wisdom, rebirth, creativity, transformation, healing and immortality. And as I mentioned, we've seen this variation in the description, but... This mother of water could also be a father of water, depending on which parts of Africa the story is coming from. She's often seen as holding a mirror and a brush. And you see that in Western mermaids too. And they become signifiers of fortune and doom, which I think is fascinating because this really sums up the mermaid. And if we think back to that previous story, Akinola was intrigued, but terrified. And there is something around mermaids that is consistent about people being intrigued and going, oh, there's this human element. We can talk to them. We can know something about them. And yet this fear that they're bringing this sense of doom and foreboding and they're delivering bad news. And this is very much what happens when we talk about the uh, Nigerian mother of water. Don't you think that's how people feel about large bodies of water anyway? Yeah. That it's almost a metaphor for that, for oceanic travel, for human interaction with the sea, that you're both curious and terrified and the mermaid having these characteristics these powers these abilities or meanings to me that says so much about travel trade fortune 
and doom. These are the things that might await you if you get into a boat, into a ship. Go on the seas. And yeah. go on the sea. Yeah, absolutely. And so she becomes an embodiment of that. And even if your fortune is my catch a fish for that day, or your fortune is crossing the Atlantic Ocean to discover, as you would term it, a new world. Those are very various fortunes, but it's symbolic nonetheless of are you going to survive today or are you going to drown and go to your doom or whatever it might be? This mother of water talking about that actual historic travel then, her story travels. We have traces of it in the American colonies. No points for guessing that this is absolutely due to the transatlantic slave trade. So that story is then becoming a global story and she becomes an international rather than just a Nigerian uh, figure. There's something here as well about the interaction, the moment of meeting between human beings and mermaids. In this story, we have the male fisherman panicking that he has to save this woman who's in the water but she's also observing him i think it was described as you know she has a look of curiosity she's looking back at him and it's this meeting of two worlds and again this is something that characterizes oceanic travel for human beings throughout time this meeting of different peoples different cultures different ideas and sort of looking back at one another yeah and she becomes something of that transatlantic travel as you're saying, and this meeting point between cultures. But then she also represents something far more timeless in that there are very modern depictions of Mother Water as well, where now if there is a depiction, she is seen as a figure of modernity, I guess, in terms of travel and globalisation. And she's also seen as a figure of worldly sophistication in our own time. That's what she stands for now. So I think that's really interesting because it links back to what you were saying about this facing new cultures coming together but then fast forward three, four hundred years, and that leads to this idea of globalization. And, and there is a mermaid sitting at the very center of that. So the mermaid, the global mermaid, is a shapeshifter. She takes all these different forms and she can fit different ideas, different narratives, different priorities of different people. It's so fascinating. So we've been to Benjamin Franklin's America. We have been to the calm shores of Nigeria. You have one more mermaid story for us, I think. Guess where I'm taking you now? Ireland. This is an interesting one that, in a way, ties the two stories that we've already encountered together. Lutty watched the waves recede along the Berra Peninsula, County Kerry, Ireland. That evening, the sky was grey, the water was grey, the beach was grey, and the rocks were grey. It was a grey day in County Kerry. Lutty was well-liked in his local community and a hard worker. And while he had many admirers, he had never quite found the woman of his dreams. That evening, feeling particularly lonely, he took to the peninsula to watch the Atlantic Ocean sweep out to sea from his beloved Kerry shoreline and offered his worries up to the departing waters that they might be taken away from him and into some far-flung corner of the world. As Lutty looked out, he suddenly saw something. Now, if you had not been Lutty and knew this peninsula like the back of your hand, you would not have seen it at all. But Lutty was Lutty, and he knew every rock on this shore, so he knew what he saw. It was a marrow, a creature of fable or so he thought, and yet here she was, beautiful and captivating right before him. So entranced was Lutty that before he knew it, his legs were moving and he was standing beside the beautiful marrow, asking her if she was stranded. 
She looked at him in despair, but did not answer. Lutty could not bear to see this poor creature struggle so, so he bent over and scooped the marrow into his arms and walked towards the roaring Atlantic. Once he was waist deep, he let the marrow go, but although she recovered, she did not swim away. Instead, she turned, faced him, and placed her cold hands either side of his face and kissed him. Lutty flushed then, as the Mero, Marina was her name, explained that because he saved her, she would grant him three wishes. Lutty could not believe his luck. He paused and thought for a while. Marina did not rush him. She knew this was an important moment in his life. Lutty gathered himself and asked for the following. Firstly, he wished for the ability to break the spells of evil witchcraft. Secondly, he wished for the power to compel the spirits of the other world to do only good things in this world. And finally, that these powers should be passed to his heirs after he had gone. Well, Marina was impressed. She had never met a man with such selfless wishes, so she said she would grant them. Lutty thanked her and offered her his hand to seal the agreement, but when he went to take it back, he could not free himself from her grasp. Marina had decided that Lutty was such a singular fellow that she did not wish to let him go. She wanted him for herself. Marina leaned closer to him. The sea gathered round the man now, while the wind whistled in his ears. Then he heard Marina's voice, as if entwined with the wind itself. She was enchanting him. He suddenly understood the danger he was in and drew his iron knife. Now, iron, as everybody knows, terrifies fairy folk. Marina suddenly withdrew, her screams smashing against the shore on the winds. She dove beneath the waves then, putting a safe distance between herself and Lutty and turned to deliver a final warning. Lutty was free to go, but in nine summers' time, Marina would return to reclaim him for herself. Well, Lutty, you let yourself down there drawing a, a knife on a mermaid. <laughs> well, what was he supposed to do? Just let, let her take him into the depth. So that was it. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, very interesting story. We are, as everyone knows, a maths podcast, and we've got that grouping of three again. <laughs> we've got the grouping of three wishes this time, and then we've got the nine summers, three threes. I don't know. It's a kind of traditional yes. fairy tale structure. Again, we've got the meeting of these two worlds happening on the beach at the shoreline, this kind of peripheral edge of human civilization. We have a mermaid here who is explicitly more threatening and more magical yes. than before. Yes. And this mermaid, Amero, is far more like the traditional mermaid that we see in a Disney movie, for instance. She is the half person, half fish. She is beautiful. She's enticing. She has this power to enchant where, you know, Lutty was drawn towards her. He didn't even realize he was walking. So it calls to mind this idea of the siren, right? Which a lot of people think mermaids and sirens are the same thing. And in some folklore, they are. But in others, sirens are flying creatures, but will lead you to your death almost all the time. But in this story, the marrow crashing against the Atlantic waves has the capability of leading you to your death too, but at the same time can grant you these wishes. So it's, we never know, similar to the Nigerian story, 
is this good or bad? Is she going to grant us something that is worthwhile? Or is she going to drag us into the depths? And to me, it says so much about power of the ocean and the fact that you must respect it. You can utilize it for your own ends, but ultimately it's in charge of you. It's interesting that you say to me that the Mero looks more like a Disney version of a mermaid, because I think she's so much more terrifying than that. I think she's almost like a Disney villain. She's more like Ursula from The Little Mermaid, arguably. Well, think about Ursula, actually. It was interesting when we were talking about the Mother Water from the Nigerian tales. Ursula has two electric eels with her, doesn't she? So that's Mm -hmm. interesting. But yes, the marrow is frightening. And if you want to hear about something that's even more frightening, the male marrows are apparently absolutely disgusting looking. They have green teeth, green hair, pig's eyes, red noses. I have a red nose right now because I've got a spot, but I'm not a marrow, unfortunately. But the women are beautiful. And that's why the women chase after human men, apparently. So the men are disgusting. The women are beautiful. That's why the marrow women go after humans. The seeking out better looking men on the shore. It says something again about female power being located in terms of beauty only as well. Yeah, absolutely. And it's the beauty that's used to lure men. So, you know, we've talked about the gender fluidity. And by the way, often in the 18th century, male mermaids weren't known as mermen. They were known as tritons. Again, a little mermaid reference there because that's the name of Ariel's father in The Little Mermaid. But that's what male mer people were known as in the 18th century, tritons rather than mermen, mm-hmm. as we would call them now. It's interesting to me how these historic elements of all these different stories that have been kind of mashed up, adapted, adopted, appropriated by different people at different times because of global trade and travel, how they are still really visible in our modern culture, not only in terms of mermaid performances today, there are people who spend their lives working as mermaids, uh, who go and do photo shoots and you know spend their leisure time as mermaids. But the idea of mer people is so pervasive in our modern culture. And if you look for it, you can find one particular mermaid in the hands of almost everyone on the planet if you go and get a coffee. Because of course, the Starbucks logo is a mermaid. And I remember being an undergrad at York and one of the lectures that I went to, and it really stayed with me. And if anyone also went to York and went to a similar lecture, please tell me which lecturer this was, because I want to write to them because it just, it stuck in my mind so much. The Starbucks mermaid is, or has her roots in at least, an early modern 16th, 17th century woodcut piece of artwork, a print. And originally, and this is very interesting thinking about female power, female sexuality, and the fact that the mermaid erases genitalia. So in the original woodcut, the mermaid is holding the comb and the mirror, which we know are elements of her outfit, her design, her sort of persona that crop up again and again in stories. And she has a female human top half. And then her lower half is not one tail, but two. And a bit like legs, they are spread in different directions. And she's holding each fin in her hands. And so you can see what's happening in the middle of those two fins. And the Starbucks logo incorporated this image originally, and it was a lot more explicit. And over time, it's been cropped and cropped to make it more palatable, presumably for a Western audience, predominantly. And now you can't see what's happening in between her tails, but you can still just about make out, I think, there are two tails going off in different directions. I think it's so fascinating that, okay, she's been edited down and made more 
polite and appropriate for our consumer culture, but she's still there. She's still there when we drink our coffee. I actually didn't know that that was a mermaid until relatively recently. I was like, oh my God, yeah, it actually is a mermaid. And and when I found out then, yes, I, I heard all of those things and the origins. And I, I thought that that was really interesting. But another thing that that reminded me of, which a lot of people may have heard of recently, is the Mermaids charity in the UK, Mermaids UK, which is a support charity for trans, non-binary and gender diverse children, young people and their families. And the mermaid was adopted as, as a symbol and as the name for this because it made a distinction between biological sex and gender and the spectrum that people experience both of those things on. This idea of the mermaid and the fluidity of the mermaid still being a potent symbol in both the LGBTQ plus community and then in you know, a commercial giant like Starbucks is still very much with us today. It's not something we've left behind in many ways. And she's constantly shape-shifting. She means different things to different people, or indeed he does. Well, on that note, I'm off to get into my old mermaid's tail and put on my purple shell bra and spend the rest of my afternoon in a nearby freezing lake. I think that's perfect. <laughs> yeah. And with that image, I'll leave you all to the rest of your days. Thank you for listening to After Dark. You know where to find us. And once you have found us, which you clearly have because you're listening to this episode, do leave us a review. It helps other people find us too. And like and subscribe to the podcast. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you again next time. Well, thank you for listening to this episode of After Dark. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can listen to all these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com forward slash subscribe. And as a special gift, now don't say we never give you anything, you can also get your first three months for £1 a month when you use the code AFTERDARK at checkout.